Well, I know this morning you probably expected John Berger to be preaching to you. He was to be, but uh, I get this morning the privilege of being the caboose, so to speak, on the tail end of this short series on the Lord's Prayer. John and Ellen are in Illinois. John got a call earlier this week that his grandfather had died, and um, so they traveled up along with Stephen and Liz I think, and, and all the Berger crew to go uh, to Illinois for the funeral, and we'll be back I think tonight, perhaps. But uh, so I get to preach to you this morning, and um, the Lord's Prayer. John has been helpfully looking at that for us these past three weeks, and and just as a little bit of a summary for that, John has explained to us and kind of broken it down in this sense to to explain that the Lord's Prayer establishes God's identity for us, and then it declares God's mission to us. And it promises God's provision for us. And finally, today, it assures us of God's protection as well. And so, this is what Jesus says, beginning in verse 5 of Matthew 6. You'll find it on page 6 in your bulletin or on some other page in your Bible. This is what Jesus says, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will, for, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. O Lord, we pray again that you would give to us your spirit. Open our ears, open our eyes, enable our hearts to receive and believe your word. And make us new, Lord, yet again that we might have faith to walk after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So earlier this year, we added the Lord's Prayer as a staple, regular part of the liturgy of our worship service. There are all kinds of proper elements to a worship service, and, and you know what many of those are, of course, it's a proper element to have the Word of God, to read Scripture and, and to preach, to expound on the Word of God in the context of a worship service. It's proper as well to sing together and to grow in our singing. Congregational singing is a great blessing to us, and it's lifting our voices in praise to God. It's very proper to sing in worship. Of course, the sacraments as well, the Lord's Supper and, and, and baptism are, are crucial elements of any Christian worship service, and also the taking up of alms, Scripture tells us, which we'll do this morning. Those, those all are, and others, 
proper elements of worship. Of course, prayer is as well. Praying to, speaking with, going to our Heavenly Father in prayer as He calls us to do. And we do that for the sake of worship, but in the context of worship, we also do it for the sake of example, to, to, to teach and encourage you in your own prayer life to pray. But the question is, how are we to pray? What is prayer? How, how does one do it? What does one do in prayer? It's something that we maybe take for granted. Um, you know, are you just supposed to ask God for the next business deal and, and, and for, you know, good luck so that all things will fall into place and things will go well for you? Or are you to ask God for order and peace at home? You know, Mom, so you can take that afternoon nap when all things tend to, to fall apart. Or are you to pray for that math test that's coming up next week? You know, the little detail things. Or is it supposed to be more otherworldly rather than the just mundane things of life? How are we to pray? And so Jesus taught his disciples to pray. It's just a fundamental part of following Jesus. Now, the potential drawback of us as a congregation regularly reciting the Lord's Prayer together in worship, and we actually, in a session meeting, had some conversation about, should we do this or not? And the hesitation was this. It's that as we regularly do it together and and say these words, read them together off of a page in a bulletin, we might be tempted over the course of time to just treat it like some incantation, like some magic spell that if we just say these words together, then we're done. We've We've done our duty of prayer. This is prayer is these words, and that's all that it is. But that's exactly what Jesus is not after here in teaching his disciples how to pray. The fact is, as he explains to them, the Father loves, he loves to hear from his children. And so this prayer is a guide to help us, to help you and me, to grow out of our babbling and into his blessing. That's what this prayer is. And and it's a simple prayer. It's such a brief prayer, isn't it? It's remarkable what a brief prayer it is. Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. And it's so brief. He says it almost within a breath, maybe two. It's a simple prayer in two parts. The the first part is acknowledgement, and the second part is petition. So this is just an overview of the prayer itself. The acknowledgement part, John covered the first couple of weeks in terms of identity and mission. Identity and mission. Basically, the acknowledgement goes like this. God, you are holy. You're the one whose name is hallowed, that is set apart and altogether different from all that I know. You are the holy one, O God. I approach you not like I approach the teller at the bank, as though I'm going for some business transaction that benefits both of us. Rather, I approach you as the Holy One. You're the one who is holy. And it's your kingdom that's coming, not mine. It's your kingdom that's coming, and it's your will that is to be done, O Lord. And in all of these acknowledgings, I I even revel as your creation, as your son or your daughter. I revel in these things because I gain my very identity from them as well. And in the context of that acknowledgement then, I petition you, Lord. I ask for something, Jesus, 
gives us permission to do it. He says, do this. Petition God for these two things. Provision and protection. Provision and protection. The the two together, this petition, basically is this question. Lord, would you sustain me? Would you sustain me, Lord? Verses 11, 12, and 13 are this question. This is what the the prayer is asking. Lord, would you sustain me? Not with lots of Christmas stuff and Black Friday deals, although those those things can be fun and, and intriguing in their own sorts of ways, but that's not, of course, what this prayer is after. Would you sustain me with two things, Lord? Would you provide for me what will lead to life? And will you protect me from what will lead to death? Those are the the things that Jesus says to petition the Lord for. What is it that leads to life? This is what John talked about last week. What leads to life? And there are two. Bread and forgiveness. Remarkably simple, isn't it? I mean, we make things so much more complicated than what Jesus does in this prayer here. The things that lead to life are bread and forgiveness, provision for both body and for soul. This is what you're asking God for. Proverbs 30 contains a great statement to this end. In Proverbs 30, verses 7, 8, and 9, the the wisdom of Proverbs connects the two. And this is what it says. Two things I ask of you, Lord. This is a great prayer. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And give me neither poverty nor riches. Those are the two. Give me today my daily bread. Maybe Jesus was thinking of this proverb as he taught on prayer. Give me today my daily bread, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You can hear the provision, the daily bread part, but you can also hear the protection Protection from what leads to death. And so I want to approach this in terms of of a couple of things. One is the broader sense of protection that the prayer provides. And that is, protect me from the isolation that I would inflict upon myself, Lord, if you were not to invade my life. Protection from isolation. Jesus begins this whole passage with two qualifiers. You heard them. The first one is this, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You know, the ones who stand in public so that everybody can see and hear them pray to God. Now, what's a hypocrite? That's a word that we bandy about too easily, maybe, without even really thinking about what it means, although it's it's pretty simple. We all have a pretty good sense of what it is. What is a hypocrite, after all? A hypocrite is someone who pretends publicly to have certain moral or religious beliefs or virtues characterizing their lives. They pretend publicly to have these things, but their actions and maybe especially their private life contradicts all those things altogether. That's what a hypocrite is. Now, this is not the same as a Christian who declares himself to be a Christian or even a a preacher who preaches these things and then fails to do them well, failure is not necessarily hypocrisy. The hypocrite is the one who puts on a front 
and then goes and bees different than what he's proclaimed. That's what a hypocrite is. And Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites. They've received their reward. What is their reward? To be seen by men. That's what they want. They want for men to see them. They want to portray moral virtues that are admirable publicly so that others will see them and think, oh, wow, he's, he's an amazing person. That's what they're after. That's what the hypocrite is after. And Jesus says, don't be like them. They, they've got what they wanted, and that is simply to be seen by men. But what have they shown? What is it that men have seen of them but just a portrayal of falsehood? They've isolated themselves from reality. That's what a hypocrite has done. And the second qualifier is this. He says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like Gentiles who think they'll be heard for their many words. I get this one. I get it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of one who, who wants to say, look, why would you use 20 words to say something you could say in five? And sometimes sermons don't necessarily reflect that, I know. But in personal life, that's more the way I am. And so I understand what he's getting here. Here, You know, why heap up empty phrases as though the more words you use, the more effective it will be in reaching into the heavens. Sometimes we cover ourselves with words when the distress and the worries are too much for us, don't we? Sometimes that's when we, we begin to just kind of let the words flow because we're distressed and we're worried and we don't know what else to do. And so, so this one isolates himself from help by covering himself with words. And so Jesus exposes a fundamental problem with prayer here. He says, basically the problem is you think about yourself too much. And so the whole of this prayer is to protect us from the isolation that we would impose on ourselves because we're afraid to show who we really are, the hypocrite, and because we hide shame with the many words that flow from our mouths, the Gentile or the, the pagan, he says here. The Lord's Prayer is a guide to theocentric prayer, to God-centered prayer. Rather than isolating ourselves with our own issues, it draws us into exposing ourselves to God. It draws us out of our isolation. And in explaining this, Jesus uncovers another problem with prayer when he says don't use many words because your father knows what you need before you ask him so that draws out a question doesn't it it should something to think about so why pray i mean if if he already knows then why pray well why pray is because redemption draws us out. God sent His only Son into the world to come and to be with us, to draw us out of ourselves, out of the destruction that we would bring upon ourselves in our isolation. C.S. Lewis wrote that, that great series, The Chronicles of Narnia, and if you haven't read it, you need to read it in order to be a Christian. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But in one of those books, the, the magician's nephew he explains a, a, a journey that Aslan, the Lion King, sent two of the children on along with a flying horse. And, of course, in Narnia, there are flying horses, and not only do they fly, they also talk. So these kids, Diggory and Polly, I think are their names, go on this mission with the flying horse. And they're out on the mission for a while, and, and after a little while, they begin to get hungry, and they realize, we have no food. 
And Diggory, the boy, says, you know, I'd think that someone would have arranged for this. And the flying horse answers and says, well, I'm sure that Aslan would have done it if you had asked. And Polly, the girl, begins to get reflective on this at the moment and goes philosophical on the flying horse. And she says, you know, wouldn't Aslan have known about something like this without having been asked? And the flying horse answers with wisdom that only a flying horse could possibly have and says, you know, Polly, I suppose that he would, but I rather think he likes to be asked. And Lewis, with that little picture, gives us a great picture of the Lord's Prayer. The father loves to hear from his children. It's, it's just as simple as that. And it's implied by the address that Jesus gives to begin the prayer. Our Father. Our Father. I would imagine that after he said those words, the disciples didn't hear the rest of the prayer. Because they began to think, huh, I'm not sure I could call Yahweh my Father. That doesn't seem quite fitting, but the fact is God is inviting you into intimate access. The, the disciples may have, may have felt presumptuous in doing it. It's kind of like kids. You know, you, you kids, as you grow up, you're calling the adults here by their last name, Mr. Smith, Mr. Johnson, etc. And one of the difficult parts of growing up for me was, as I got older, having to begin to call my friends' parents by their first names. That's tricky. And I remember my first job as a college student, the summer after my freshman year of college, I came back here to Dallas and got a job with one of my good friend's father, who was in the mortgage banking business. He gave me a job for that summer. And uh, my first day on the job, he gave me an assignment. And I said, okay, Mr. Johnson, thanks. I'll, I'll go and do this. And he said, no, Colin, let me straighten this out first before you start working for me this summer. You're now in college. You're getting to be a grown man. You need to call me, not Mr. Johnson. You need to call me Mort. And I said, okay, Mr. Johnson. You know, it's one of those awkward things. For the disciples, it had to feel that way kind of here. Our Father? This is Yahweh we're talking about, Jesus. But it shouldn't have been presumptuous to them because there was precedent for it. And if they knew their Bibles, they would have seen it. In Exodus 33, we read about Moses and his leading of the people. And outside of the camp of the Israelites, there was a tent that Moses would go and set up this tent. They called it the tent of meeting. And Moses would go there to meet with Yahweh. And there in Exodus 33, Moses writes about it and explains it and says, The Lord would speak to Moses there at the tent face to face as a man speaks with his friend. I mean, even Moses, back in the Old Testament, with Yahweh, who'd drawn them out of Egypt and into the wilderness, spoke to God as with a friend. This is what the disciples now are standing face to face with. The Son of God Himself is saying to them, Call Him Father, because He wants to hear from you. You know, every parent of school-aged children knows this. Every parent of school-aged children wants their children to talk to them. But how hard is that sometimes? You know, you pick them up from school and you drive home and you say, so tell me about your day. It was fine. 
So how was it? It was good. Listen, kids, I'm not slamming you. I was this way too. I, I was this. I was hard. I, just, I had a hard time talking to my parents. Not that I was afraid of them. I just didn't want to talk. You know, when I was in seventh grade, at the end of the school year, the the social studies teacher came to me, and and she was the the coordinator of the student council, the student government body, and she said to me, Colin, you know, you really ought to run for president of the student council. And I said. Okay, well, what does that mean? What do I have to do? She said, well, all you got to do is stand up and make a speech in front of the student body about why you'd want to be the student council president. And I said, nope. <laughs> Not going to do that. I had no idea I'd end up being a preacher at that point. But I said no. And my mom didn't find out about her compliment to me, you ought to run for president. My mom didn't know about that until the next fall at a school open house when that very teacher told my mom about it. She had no idea because I wasn't going to tell her about it. Parents want their kids to talk to them, but, but, you know, kids just won't. And we're the same way with God, sons and daughters of God. You don't want to talk to your father, but your father wants you to talk to him. Our, our inclination is to isolate ourselves from each other and from God as well. And in that isolation, there's great danger as we see as this prayer progresses, because the prayer promises protection, and it becomes specific in verse 13. You know, that's, that's really where the protection begins to reside in the context of this prayer, as God intends to protect us from the damage that's inflicted in just a moment of temptation. Lead us not into temptation, the prayer goes. Now, this is that part of the petition of, Sustain me, Lord. Give me what will lead to life and protect me from what will lead to death. Lead us not into temptation and the damage, the the death even that it can bring. Now, there's a subtle explanation, distinction that's required at this point here. Because why even pray this? I mean, why would you who believe in a merciful and gracious God even have the need to pray, lead me not into temptation, because that sort of implies that, well, if you didn't pray it, maybe God would. I mean, would God ever lead you into temptation? No. The answer is clearly no. God will not do that. Scripture is clear elsewhere. God will test you. He will not tempt you. Now, there's a difference, and James explains it in in his theologically and practically full letter, James explains it. He says it this way, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire... He's dragged away and enticed. God does not tempt us. Temptation is like a bait and switch. I have a $100 bill in my pocket. I don't mean to bait and switch you with it. I'm not sure I can find it in there. It's there, I promise. Mary, my wife, found it in the parking lot of a department store. A week ago, it's a $100 bill. Can you imagine if you were walking through a parking lot and you saw a $100 bill laying on the ground? What would you do? 
Well, you'd stop and pick it up. And you'd probably feel a little conflicted at the moment, thinking, well, it's a $100 bill. It's not just a one. I mean, maybe I shouldn't put it in my pocket. Maybe I should walk it back into the store and see if somebody lost it and leave it with them. Or maybe not. Maybe I'll just keep it. Either way, you know, you pick it up. So she picked it up. It's a $100 bill. I've got it right here. You can see it. It's folded. And then she unfolded it. And it's only that big. And she looked on the back, and it says this. Disappointed? Jesus won't let you down. Come on. I mean, really? I mean, are you really going to bait and switch me with a $100 bill? That's temptation. Okay, if you have a pack of these at home, throw them away. Don't use them. That's what temptation does to you. It it baits and it switches and it does disappoint you. It, It does. God does not tempt us. He tests us. And in Deuteronomy 8, Moses reminds the people of how he had done it. This is what Moses reminds them, saying, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Testing is intended for spiritual construction. Temptation is intended for spiritual destruction. And so God gives protection. And you said it in the assurance of pardon together moments ago as the Apostle Paul explained it so well in 1 Corinthians 10. What did we say together there? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Temptation is so common. I mean, it it takes only a moment to do its damage. You know it. You know all the places where you see temptation in this life. You know, in your personal life, all you've got to do is walk to the checkout line of the grocery store and see the magazines standing on the rack, beckoning you, calling out to you visually to lust and to gossip and to covet. It's just right there. Or in your professional life, I can't imagine. I'm I'm not a businessman, but I can't imagine kind of entering into the next deal and seeing things begin to come together and things that need to be jettisoned in order to make room for the things that you need to put the deal together and being tempted to sacrifice people for profit. I imagine that that temptation is there. Or in your social life, you know, in just any kind of small group context, or at a, at a holiday party, the temptation to, to seize the moment on a little conversation, to spin it just a bit, even if it makes someone else look bad, in order to elevate yourself in that little social circle. The temptation is there. Or even politically. You know, so many temptations politically as we are engaged in politics and as those who are engaged 
in politics. This past week, my dad and I went over to SMU to McFarland Auditorium to a program that they were putting on there, hosting George W. Bush and an interviewer. It was a book signing for, for the, the book that he's recently published, a biography about his father. And it was a fun and engaging interview to sit and listen to. There were a thousand people packing out McFarland Auditorium, all big George Bush fans. And the interviewer was asking him questions, and he was really guiding the entire thing. But the interview, a, a interviewer at one point asked him, it just the, the moment was right, and he asked him something really, I don't even remember the details of it, but so President Bush, the current administration is doing this, and what you said in your book was this, and W, in a moment, recognized the temptation. He had a thousand fans ready to eat every word he said, and the interviewer, but the current administration, and W's response was, it's my policy to not talk about sitting presidents. But in my book, in a moment, he recognized the temptation. Oh, he could have taken the bait. And nobody would have blamed him. He wouldn't have gotten in trouble. He would have been even more popular with that crowd. But he saw the temptation of the moment. And the damage only takes a moment to take effect. Because temptation is so prolific, it's so common, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 10. There in that passage, in your assurance of pardon, we, we quoted it. No temptation is overtaking you that's not, what, common to man. Those three words that we have in our English Bible are one word in Paul's Greek letter. The word is anthropenos. It's the Greek word from which we get our word anthropology. Now, anthropology, before it was a, a hip clothing store, was actually the scientific study of mankind, of, of humankind. That's what anthropology is. Anthropinos, Paul says. There's no temptation that's, overtake, that's overtaking you that is not anthropinos. What he means is, is not human-like. There's no temptation that's overtaking you that is not just a normal part of the fabric of being a human being. That's what he means. And the point is this. If you're a human being, then you are subject to every temptation that's out there. Every one, because it's in you. And it's humbling, and it's even frightening for us to recognize it. The fact is, you don't need for God to lead you into temptation. You're quite willing to go there yourself. You're willing to isolate yourself from your Creator who would have you call Him Father and in that moment pick up the $100 bill instead. You're willing to do that even when you know by the experience that the bait and switch will leave you empty and, and you know that it will. It will leave you grasping at straws and with damage to your soul. So, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Of course he won't. Of course he won't do that. But he does lead. He does lead you somewhere. Now again, Moses, back in his day, they had just passed through the Red Sea. God had just made this miraculous exit from Egypt for them possible into freedom. And Miriam, Moses' sister, composes a beautiful song of praise to God there as they stand on the far edge of the sea, having passed through. And in that 
song of praise, she sings this. In your unfailing love, Lord, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. And that's the story of redemptive history. That is the way of escape that Paul writes of in 1 Corinthians 10. That God will lead you with steadfast love, with unfailing covenant love, by which He has bound Himself to you. And as you see that love of God, which will not leave you empty as the bait and switch, more and more He provides the way of escape that you might see the temptation and say, No. Instead, you recognize that God protects you from that moment and also even from the loss that can be inflicted for eternity. Lead us not into temptation, the prayer goes, but rather deliver us from evil. Some Bible translations include the definite article, which is there. Deliver us from the evil. That is, from the evil one. Deliver us, Lord, from your enemy. Deliver us from Satan himself. Because there is, after all, one out there who longs to inflict evil on you, to drag you through the mud, to spin your words, your failures, your intentions to his advantage. And he'll do it with every subtle thing. I mean, just as subtle as this sort of thing. When, when we were in college, Mary was uh, a tour guide on campus. And she would take you know, visitors around campus, telling them all about the campus and why they should come to Vanderbilt University and what a great place that it was. And you can imagine she'd be a wonderful tour guide and a friendly tour guide. And, and she was guiding one group by the, the Vanderbilt Hospital area. And on this particular occasion, there was a camera crew with her filming because they were filming to make a, a, a promotional video for the university. And on that particular tour she made a comment over by the hospital to this crew of visitors. And she said, you know, if you're going to get sick, Vanderbilt's a great place to do it. Because there's this hospital complex here and there's medical uh, uh, program here is so good and strong that, that if you're going to be sick, this is a safe place. Well, they took that one comment completely out of context and put it in the, the video as, what was it, dumb things people say? If you're going to get sick, Vanderbilt's a great place to do it. Listen, if they would do something as harmless and silly as that, how much more would the evil one, how much more would Satan himself take you and your actions, your words, and turn them to his advantage for your own loss? And so Jesus turns our prayer to petition protection because he knows what the Father is doing, of course. Your kingdom come, we've prayed. But Satan also aspires to be a king. There is another aspiring kingdom in this world among which we live that has your death and harm and loss in its sight. Satan aspires to be king. But moments ago, we read from Psalm 46. That was Luther's great fortress psalm. And that was no mistake because in that psalm, we see what the Father is doing. This is the protection that God provides. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains crumble into 
the sea. God is with His people. God is with His city, the psalmist says. His city that will not fall. Now, Jesus could tell His disciples to pray, Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. Because He knew what the songbook of Israel said. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord Almighty is among us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He makes wars to cease. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots. And then he says this. Did you hear it in the psalm? After that violent ending of all wars, then he says this. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am Yahweh. Be still and know that I am the Father who holds you in His very hands. Jesus could tell His disciples to pray, deliver us from evil, because that's the very thrust of redemptive history. That's the very reason why God Himself, who created all things, sent His only Son in the flesh to come and to live and to die and to rise again in order to deliver us from the evil one. The one who already is in the throes of his own death as I speak. The one who has no power over the cross to draw you in other than a flimsy, fake $100 bill. That's all he has. But God is your fortress. And so when you pray, when we pray here together, the Lord's Prayer, this is what you pray. God, your identity is where I rest. Your mission is what I do. Your provision is how I live. And your protection is why I endure. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever, indeed. Amen. O Lord, we pray that you would give to us faith to believe this word. Would you strengthen our hearts so that we might recognize, Lord, how you do, in fact, protect us. How you call us to yourself, and you walk before us, and you reside among us and in us that you, O God, are our strength and our fortress. And because of that, we have life and hope in the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.